0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship
2: quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing
3: you can't
2: ask on the Savage Lovecast.
4: I hate to admit it, but I'm one of those white people. I'm one of those white people who had a knee jerk kind of defensive reaction when Black Lives Matter protesters shut down a Bernie Sanders rally here in Seattle, which was some weeks after they had interrupted a Bernie Sanders speech at Netroots Nation. And my reaction was, oh, my God, why are they attacking or interrupting or shutting down Bernie Sanders and not going after Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Donald Trump? And shortly after Black Lives Matter, protesters got in the face of Hillary Clinton. And I had the same sort of defensive white Democrat reaction. Like, why are they attacking the people who are on their side and not attacking the evil GOP shit stains who are are our enemies? All of us. Everyone on the planet. The GOP is the enemy of everyone on the fucking planet now with their obstructionism and denialism of climate change. But, yes, there are enemies, too. And the enemies of the Black Lives Matter movement, absolutely. And I just thought, why aren't they going after them? Why go after Bernie and Hillary? But then it wasn't long until even I came to my senses. Even I saw the results of those actions when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton pivoted from the usual platitudes and presumptions of Democratic politicians, where they would issue platitudes about racial equality and presume to have locked up the black vote and the votes of other people who give a shit about black lives, myself included. And then that would be it. Some platitudes and a presumption platitudes. And I can presume to have locked down your vote. And what we saw coming out of Hillary and Bernie in the wake of these confrontations, weren't just platitudes and presumption, but policy positions and promises that were not just promises of some sort of racially harmonious utopian future that they would help lead the way toward, but promises around Policy, changed things that they would do and do differently. And they brought – both of them brought people into their campaign from the movement. And that was a moment where I went, oh, yeah, right. This works. Getting in the faces of politicians, even people on your side, that shit works. And it worked and is working. And now, of course, you see really brave Black Lives Matter protesters all the time getting dragged out of and sometimes physically assaulted at Donald Trump rallies. So that thing that I had my knee-jerk, dumb fucking white guy reaction to when they first went after white guy Bernie Sanders around, go get the big guys who are really your enemies, they fucking are doing that now. Black Lives Matter protests are going after the folks who are actively their enemies, not just passively their enemies, as often the case with white-ass Democrat politicians, but actively enemies as opposed to passive. Useless friends, maybe. Not call them enemies. Passive use of friends as opposed to active enemies. And they're doing it. And you see it all the time. It's always on the news. Black Lives Matter protesters interrupting Donald Trump speeches at great personal risk, really putting themselves on the line. Some of them getting assaulted. And those assaults cheered on by Donald Trump who is cruising to the Republican nomination, which is staggering and appalling. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the successes of the Black Lives Matter movement. I wanted to talk about my stupidity. At the onset here in Seattle, when I saw Bernie Sanders get interrupted, I take it back. Those thoughts I thought, things I didn't even write, things I didn't even say publicly, I thought them, but they were the wrong thoughts, and that movement proved me wrong and reminded me that even I am sometimes spectacularly wrong, right? Which brings us to Chicago. I hope that all of you are familiar with the shit that's been going down in Chicago with the police shooting, in the case of Laquan McDonald, an unarmed teenager, 16 times, burying the video, reeks of a cover-up, an enterprising crusading reporter leverages that video out of the hands of the people covering it up, goes on the air, big national story, suddenly an indictment of this officer who pulled a gun on this teenager and killed him, shot him 16 times, and lied about it. And evidence appears to have been destroyed. Other officers were involved. Other officers misrepresented what they witnessed. Officers went into a nearby Burger King and had the manager erase a tape that might have had evidence on it of the shooting. And there are protests in Chicago. Protesters shut down Michigan Avenue. Black Lives Matter protesters, people protesting the shooting death of Laquan McDonald. And over Christmas, while we were away... Chicago cops responding to a domestic disturbance shot and killed a college student, African-American college student who may have been having a problem with mental illness, unarmed shot and killed him and a bystander in the same building when they were called to a domestic violence dispute. And so the shit's hitting the fan in Chicago and needs to, and there's something happening in Chicago. I think we should all be paying attention to. There is this movement to recall or force Mayor Rahm Emanuel to resign. Now, Rahm Emanuel was a really powerful member of Congress for a long time. He was Barack Obama's chief of staff for a long time. He is an Obama guy, ran for mayor, got elected, ran for mayor again, got reelected kind of by the skin of his teeth. It was a much tougher race than he expected it to be. And now, because of what looks like or has to be assumed his involvement in this cover up of this police tape, which he claims he didn't see until everybody else saw it, which strains credulity, there is this movement to force the resignation of Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. And I support that movement that needs to fucking happen because police forces are not going to change until mayors and governors presidents. But let's start with mayors lose their fucking jobs when it's not just some cop's job on the line. When police departments at an institutional level Abuse their power and authority, but Obama's buddy Rahm Emanuel's job on the line, major elected officials' jobs on the line if police departments cannot reform themselves and police themselves. And actually, as they say in Chicago, the Chicago Police Department's motto, if they actually cannot serve and protect the public, there needs to be accountability at the executive level, the mayor's ass needs to be on the line. And the mayor's ass is on the line in Chicago where protesters are demanding his resignation. People are gathering signatures, demanding his resignation. Traffic was blocked. Like I said, on Christmas Eve along North Michigan Avenue, people demanding that Rahm Emanuel resign in the wake of this ongoing scandal in Chicago. And there were some rumblings actually before Christmas about a protest chance at O'Hare International Airport, which would be a very big fucking deal. Post 9-11, we don't tolerate shit at airports. Misbehavior at airports is not something that is welcome. But Saul Alinsky, maybe you remember that name from the 2012 re-election campaign of Barack Obama because Newt Gingrich and other Republican shit stains we were running then kept talking about Obama as a Saul Alinsky radical. And Saul Alinsky did write a book called Rules for Radicals, but it was about political engagement and involvement. And if you actually read Rules for Radicals, you will see that most of its organizing tips are very mainstream. That if you want to change the Democratic Party, he says to people who are protesting in the streets, in Grant Park in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention where my dad, who was a cop at the time, cracked open hippie heads in the park – He says to them, if you want to change the Democratic Party, be the delegates. Don't just scream at the delegates. Go and be the delegates. Organize and take over. And what reminded me of Saul Alinsky reading about what's going on in Chicago right now is that he once planned a protest at O'Hare Airport. Because the then mayor of Chicago, Richard J. Daley, was backing out of promises that he had made to civil rights activists, betraying them, double-crossing them and so sololinsky who was very smart about planning protests planned a protest at o'hare airport where they were not going to picket they were not going to march they were going to pack every bathroom in the airport and have a shit in protest so that people getting off the airplanes at o'hare airport way way back in the 70s way way back then in the 60s would have nowhere to relieve themselves after they landed and what were the cops going to do? Knock on every stall and demand proof that you were shitting for real and not just pretending to shit to shut down the bathrooms at the airport? And just the threat of this protest, this shit in protest. And they did reconnaissance and they lined up the people. They organized the action. Just the threat of this protest designed by Saul Alinsky, Brilliant. Brilliantly conceived protest by Saul Alinsky, brought the mayor around. The mayor reversed himself, re-reversed himself because he was engaged in a double cross and it became a quadruple cross at that point, And the mayor made good on the promises that he had made. The civil rights activists in Chicago is in the sixties and Saul Alinsky got him to do it. Activists got him to do it by targeting O'Hare airport. Now, I'm not saying that post nine 11 targeting an airport is wise, but I am saying if we all pick up rules for radicals or read playboy magazines, interview with Saul Alinsky from 1972, there are tips in there about how you force a mayor to do something that you want that mayor to do in Richard J. Daly's case, make good on that promise in Rahm Emanuel's case resign. And that is indeed what needs to happen. Elected officials, white Democrats in big machine cities like Chicago need to know that they're going to lose their jobs too. If they don't, exercise their authority over their police departments and rein them the fuck in and end this reign of terror on communities of color in big cities all across this country. All right, quick note before we start this week's show, we recorded this episode at a studio in Los Angeles because I was down in LA for a thing. So the sound quality is going to be a little different than that of our, of course, glamorous studio on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual building in beautiful downtown Seattle. So you're going to notice a little difference, but you'll enjoy the show anyway, which starts now.
5: Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old female, and my question is about communicating with loved ones about my new line of work, Um, particularly my parents, and particularly my mom. Um, I'm getting ready to go home for the holidays, and I would really like to share with her that I've recently begun working as a webcam girl, and... Since I've started doing this, I just feel like I have finally begun to integrate a part of myself that has always been really difficult for me to accept, and let alone to share with other people. And I just feel so happy and whole and just liberated, I'm like I'm living my passion and I'd really like to keep doing this. And, you know, I see just wonderful things coming into my life through this work, and I would love to be able to celebrate that with my parents. But I'm feeling really nervous about telling my mom um, we're really close. We have the kind of relationship that I feel like I can disclose anything, and they do. We've had plenty of uncomfortable conversations and I've shared scary things with her Um, and she and my father have both been nothing but strong and loving and supportive so I know that I can share this with her but I'm worrying about doing it because I think for the first time I'm really worried about how it's going to fit with her own personal values which was is a private thing growing up in my family. I was given a lot of freedom to develop my own values and seek guidance when I felt like I needed it. And now as an adult, I'm interested in hers and learning more about her and how she feels about life and what she believes in, but I'm not sure how she's going to feel about this particular thing. And while I really want to be able to share with her I also don't want to burden her, and I know she's going to worry about my safety, and I know she's going to worry about how this line of work could impact my future. I'm just wondering what you think, if you have an idea of how I might be able to tell her in a way that's easier for her to hear, or you think it's fair for me to tell her at all if it's something that might worry her.
4: There may come a time when you can tell your mom about your new job. Maybe the holidays is the wrong time. Maybe that would be an inconsiderate time. And I'm a bit of a hypocrite here, I realize, because I have in the past encouraged people to come out as gay or lesbian or bi or trans to their families at the holidays to seize the opportunity. But I think in this instance, that might not be a terrific idea for two reasons. A, you will be accused, perhaps, if your parents have a really terrible reaction, of ruining the holidays. And it doesn't sound like you need that grief on top of whatever other grief your parents might heap up on you when they find out about your new gig. But also, I think the holidays might be the wrong time because it's too soon. This is a new job. And it's terrific that you feel happy and whole and integrated in this new job. And it's awakened a part of you that was asleep before and that you wanted to wake the fuck up. But... How you feel about a new gig, particularly one where you put yourself personally and physically on the line, how you feel about that gig initially in the first three months, four months, may not be how you feel about that gig after a year or two. And I just don't want you to be in a position of having to go home and look your parents in the eye and have them say, we told you so. Because if what you go to them right now is I've been doing this for six weeks and it's wonderful and affirming and transcendent and I feel more alive and in touch and blah, blah, blah. And your parents are like, it's dehumanizing. It can really emotionally trip a person up, particularly a vulnerable person. And the endorphins and oxytocins that you're feeling now may not be how you're feeling in 10 weeks. You don't want to have to go home after a year after maybe encountering a handful of really shitty clients who said shitty things to you or attracting unwelcome attention on twitter or elsewhere you know there are a lot of assholes out there who go after and slut shame the women that they encounter on cams who they at once desire and resent because they want to have you and they can't and they have you in this limited way not all the guys are a lot of really respectful cam girl clients out there and porn consumers who are very grateful for what cam girls do share with them but there are some fucking toads out And who knows, you may encounter a handful of them and stop doing this in six months or a year. And then your mother is going to be like, we tried to tell you. So I would just wait until you're more certain that this is everything that you feel it is now. And that means give it some more time. Give it six months. Give it a year. Share this info with your mom on July 4th or Arbor Day next Thanksgiving you're really secure in the gig and you've got some miles behind you. All that said, you say you don't want to burden your mother. And I had the same kind of relationship with my mother. I could tell her anything. I could ask her anything. I could really share anything, but there were things I didn't tell her and things I didn't ask her about because I didn't want to burden her. And my mother knew that there were things I didn't tell her about or ask her about and she had this saying, and I'm not sure if it was hers originally, because I think I've encountered it in one or two other places, that there are things a mother has a right not to know. That one of the ways you can show your love for your mom is not by sharing everything. with them, Because moms and dads panic. And my mother suffered from this thing that I suffer from, called worst case scenario disorder. So If I told her I was doing something the least bit edgy or dangerous, or I was crawling out on a limb, she would be in a panic about it. And if I was like, no, it's cool, like you have these misconceptions about it, it's not unsafe, it's not dangerous, the people I'm with are very respectful, that wouldn't have comforted her. The only thing that would have comforted her was to know that whatever it was I had told her about that was a burden and a terror to her was over and in my past. Which is another option. you. You may cam girl, as some people do, you may work as a cam girl for a few years, 29, maybe a decade, You will want to do this and it will make good things happen for you in your life and give you the money that you need to live or pursue other interests concurrently. And then you will be done with it. And at that time, perhaps, you can share with your mother that this is something that you did and it was transformative for you and provided you with opportunities and insights and it was invaluable. But it's over. And your mother doesn't have to panic until it's over. She can just have her little meltdown about the fact that it ever was. Some things for you to think about. Whatever you decide to do, though, not now, not Christmas, not because it's Christmas. I've encouraged other people to go ahead and ruin Christmas, their parents, their families, but because this Christmas is too soon. The new gig, you've got to give yourself a little more time in it where you're sure that your initial reaction. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight male from Florida.
6: My girlfriend of three years and I recently decided to enter an open relationship Then she was moving to Denver and attempt a long-distance relationship. Before she left, she started to have a sexual relationship with one of her girlfriends. After my girlfriend moved away, her friends with Benny's and I started to hang out, Got along very well and became good friends. I felt that we have a strong connection. Over Thanksgiving, my girlfriend and I decided to end our relationship and still remain close friends. She did make me promise that I wasn't allowed to make out with her fuck buddy, whom she knew I had feelings for. Two weeks afterwards, the friend and I were hanging out and drinking, and we ended up making out. I thought it was a mutual thing. The friend told my ex the next day, who blew up on me and stated that she hates me for betraying her trust and is ready to never talk to me again. My ex also told me that if I pursue anything with her fuck buddy, that she would no longer be either of our friends. I talked with the other girl who was upset, and she doesn't want to talk to me right now, and I'm unsure if we can still be friends. I don't know what I should do next and need advice. Should I try to rebuild my friendship with my ex? Should I pursue my feelings towards the friends, even if it means throwing away three years of a close relationship? Or should I forget both of them and move on?
4: I can't help but think that on some unconscious level or subconscious level, your ex-girlfriend really wanted you to hook up with her fuck buddy, really wanted you to make out with her. Because why else would she say, you can't make out with my fuck buddy? That is a sort of thing that you say to someone that then just making out with the fuck buddy is all they can think about from that moment on. And I wonder, seriously, wonder if subconsciously your girlfriend wasn't inciting you uh, on some level, attempting to incite you on some level to approach the fuck buddy or flirt with or go make out with her fuck buddy because you guys were doing what so many people do when the relationship ended and trying to have be friends and be a friendship without what I think is kind of the necessary long time out. You have to get the fuck away from each other. You have to leave each other alone. And your girlfriend seems to have engineered with your enthusiastic assistance and participation seems to have engineered a casus belli. I always say that in my head as causes belli, but I just listened to it so I didn't mispronounce yet another word on my podcast and beyond the receiving end of a million scolding tweets. She seems to have engineered a casus belli, a reason for the conflict, a a, a reason to get the fuck away from you, right? A reason to justify ending the relationship, ending the friendship you guys were trying to establish in the wake of your relationship and taking that needed a necessary long time out. I predict that you having violated your ex-girlfriend's unreasonable dictate about who you could and couldn't make out with that in time, she's going to skulk away and be angry, perhaps at you and her fuck buddy that will cauterize the wounds. The, 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 the raw feelings will scar over new scar tissue will build up over them. And in time, you guys may by circumstance or geography be thrown back together and be able to tiptoe toward each other and reestablish that friendship, but you needed that away time to do that. And you guys didn't, because so many people have it in their heads that they need to instantly be friends with their ex, that they will skip the away time process. They'll try to skip past that and just stick the dismount, literally a dismount, stick that dismount and be friends right away. And in my experience, my observations of other people's relationships, that doesn't work being friends immediately staying in touch immediately each other's lives and faces immediately from the start of the end. Need that way. Need that no contact stage before you can have the friendship that you want to have after you guys weren't having that no contact stage, And so your ex-girlfriend and with your enthusiastic assistance engineered it by forbidding you to eat the apple off that tree. And you went and ate the apple off that tree. And now you are cast out of paradise, but unfollowed on Twitter, unfollowed on Instagram, unfriended on Facebook by your ex girlfriend, which is probably in the best interest of your future friendship with your ex
7: girlfriend. Hey, Dan. I'm straight 30 year old female. I actually live in Seattle and I am a rideshare driver. A couple weeks ago, one of my passengers who is very intoxicated um, wasn't his account, one of his friends. Shoved him into my car, big burly 6'2 guy, kept slurring about how pretty he thought I was and all that. And then while I was driving on the Five North, he, um, from the back seat, reached up, grabbed me, grabbed my breast, started kissing me on the neck. Um, I pushed him back and told him, No, you're distracting my driving. He does it again. And um, so what I did. After he sat back in the seat as he started mumbling about how he was going to fuck me, this guy was belligerent, drunk. Um, Luckily, he passed out in the back seat of my car. Um, I did the smart thing. I got off the interstate. I pulled up to a Fred Meyer, a really busy one, got out of the car, locked him in my car, called the cops. As the cops were cuffing him, he was backwards to the cops. He was looking at me. He winks and does that noise, just showing me that the guy has No fucking remorse. Knew he was going to get away with it. Well, a couple weeks later, I find out that he just got a misdemeanor, not even for sexual assault, but for assault and harassment. Nothing with the sexual... None of that is completely getting away with this with a slap on the wrist. I have no doubt in my mind that there was a very good chance that he would have raped me if I had taken him to his location in Shoreline. I want to know what else I can do about this. I have a feeling you would have some really good feedback for me because of your show, voicing how women need to stand out for themselves. And I even had the, had the guts to do this and
2: take action about it.
4: Wow. That is really distressing and really disappointing. Really disappointed in the police department that you contacted, which I believe is the police department in the city where I live. I would encourage you to get the police reports and I would encourage you to go to the media you've already kind of gone to the media you've come to me for advice about what to do and i am media i guess and i think you need to approach news reporters about what happened you reported a sexual assault that you felt and i think you're right to feel this way would likely have resulted in a rape if you hadn't had had the presence of mind to do what you did to head to the fred meyer to go to a public place a lot of people lock him in the car and call the cops right fucking on good for you the cops dropped the ball. The cops fucked this up. And this is the sort of thing that a little media attention, a few phone calls from reporters, knowing that the story is coming, that a story is being written, can fix. I'm not sure if, in this case, ch- new charges can be filed. I believe that they can, but I am not a lawyer. We'd have to get a lawyer for that to determine that. But at the very least, new policies will come thundering down. From the police chief and the mayor's office to ensure that this doesn't happen again, that we err on the side of charging people who've committed sexual assault with sexual assault, not with whatever bullshit misdemeanor this was knocked down to. So get the to your nearest news outlet go. I happen to know of one in Seattle that might be very interested in this story. And if you'd like me to pass your contact information along to a reporter, no many, give me a call back.
8: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 22-year-old bisexual married female. I recently got married this July, and it was a great experience. I love my husband very much. We have a great sex life. We're very open with each other. He's very supportive of my bisexuality. He was actually one of the people who helped me really come out five years ago. I'm very out and open with all of my friends, including some family members, well, mainly just my mother-in-law, who's... Very, very supportive when I struggle with what I'm going to talk to you about now. My parents don't know. They're not necessarily homophobic, but they may they, they, they do make odd comments, things like, you know, joking about when I was a teenager, don't come home with a girl or, you know, small, small, small little things. It never really bothered me, but in the last couple of years, it's really started to strike a chord that I can't be 100% open with my parents. We have a semi rocky relationship and we're at a pretty good good patch right now and I don't want to mess that up. But I would like to be open with them. I'm open with all of my friends, I'm open with my husband, I'm open with my mother-in-law and it's a big part of my life. There's been a couple slip ups where I may have, you know, been obviously checking out a woman in front of my mother or My husband has made a comment about me finding a female celebrity attractive, but I want to talk to them, but I'm afraid that they'll either think it's a joke or not take it seriously or say something like, well, you're married to a man, it doesn't matter. I just really need some help because it drives me crazy and I I want to be open with them, but I'm scared because they've, they've rejected me a lot and I don't want to get hurt. And I just I want to know what your advice is if I should come out to them if I should test the waters. Your shows helped me a lot and I just figured it was time for me to give a call in. So
4: thanks. You're in a good place with your parents right now or as you called it a semi good patch which sounds like the best you can do with your parents. If not now when? If not when things are going well, that's when things are going well-ish, that seems like the right time to broach a difficult subject and waiting for, I don't know, the shitstorm to recommence, and then to just throw that into the, the whirl and the mix and the cyclone. Now, go to your parents now. And they might say horrible things. And you need to buck up. Every teenager, every young adult who's ever come out to their families have come out in the face of the possibility and the likelihood, and in many cases the certainty, that their parents would say horrible, hateful, ignorant things. Steal yourself for that. Because that is likely. And that is something that your parents, being the people that you know them to be, have to go through, have to work through. You are gonna to have to go in there prepared to let them say shitty things and to let them roll off your bisexual back. Let them say their shitty things. And if you've been a listener to the podcast for a long time, you have heard me say this to other young, queer people who are facing coming out of their families. You are afraid of being rejected. You fear their rejection. You fear the rejection so much that right now you can't let them know who you really are. So in a way you're already pulling away from your parents. You're kind of soft rejecting them. Right? You're pulling away from them, silently moving away from them because you can't reveal who you really are to them, so you're having to wall them off. You're rejecting them because you fear they might reject you. And the shift you need to make, the the Flip. you need to switch in your head as you go in there not fearing your parents' rejection. You go in there prepared to make your parents fear your rejection. You say to them, this is who I am. This is the truth about me. Maybe you sensed it early because you said some shitty things to me when I was a teenager about possibly dating someone of my same sex. And I still remember those things and that hurt. And you should apologize for having said those things because it made it hard for me to be fully who I am with you, to be honest with you about who I am. And I want to be honest with you about who I am because I want to have that kind of relationship with you guys. But if you can't have a relationship with me, your actual daughter, the person I really am, we can't have a relationship at all. The only leverage you have over your parents as an adult is your presence. And if they can't love you and support you, if they can't refrain from saying shitty, horrible things to you about you, you don't make yourself present. You withdraw, You pull away. You tell them you will see them when they're over it. That said, I do think that as a kid, as the adult child in this circumstance, you have to give your parents permission to have their tantrum. You have to be prepared for them to have the tantrum, emotionally prepared yourself. And it sounds like you have a really good support network, so you're in a better place than a lot of kids are when they face that tantrum. A lot of kids come out, their parents have that tantrum, and they have no loving husband, no mother-in-law on their side, no supportive friends or other family. They got nobody, and they're facing down that tantrum. But you kind of got to let them have it, just like when you were a kid. Your parents, assuming they weren't completely terrible parents in every respect, when you were a kid, your parents loved you through a few tantrums of your own. You, as an adult, twenty-two-year-old newly out bi woman, you might have to love your parents through the tantrum that they are likely to have. When child has a tantrum. The parent says, "I understand you're upset. I love you." Kid says, "I hate you. I hate you. I hate you." The parent says. I know, I love you. You wait out the storm. You might have to do the same for your parents as an adult. When you're coming out to them. Oh my God, bisexual. Oh my God, I hate you, I hate you. You don't feel that way? Not really. I love you. And we'll talk again later. Here's some fucking things to read. Here's some links. Here's the PFLAG chapter in your neighborhood. Here's my mother-in-law's phone number if you'd like to talk with her. Check with your mother-in-law first if she's up for having you sick her mother on her you bring them together to have a conversation and then let the pieces fall where they may. And who knows, this may be a catalyst that gets you to a much better place with your parents where the semi good patch becomes a legitimately good patch and lasts a little longer because you're all being a little more honest with each other. Or this may be the thing that flips the table over. This may be the thing that is so explosive and your parents are so awful that you no longer have to be with them or see them. And maybe that would be better if their presence in your life is, toxic, or the best you can hope for is semi-good, semi-rocky patches where they're only being kind of awful, you don't have to put up with that as an adult. You have to create your own family. And you already have. You have to spend more time in that family of your own creation where you are loved. If the family of your origin cannot love you. We're going to take a quick break from your calls. There are tons of scientists and researchers and academics out there trying to figure out what is up with human sexuality. And every once in a while, we invite one of them on our show to share the results of their latest research for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me by phone, Justin Lay-Miller. He's a social psychologist and sex researcher at Ball State University. He's also the author of the terrific blog, Sex and Psychology, and he writes Hard Science, a weekly column for Playboy. So, Justin Lay-Miller, what do you got?
0: Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, So, the study that I'm going to tell you about today is a paper I recently published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that looks at people who are in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships and uh, essentially compares their sexual health history and status. The idea that I wanted to test here was basically whether people in Monogamous relationships, or people who say that they're monogamous, uh, are are actually at lower risk of contracting sexually transmitted infections compared to people who are uh, consensually non-monogamous.
4: And that's something everybody's always talking about when you talk about non-monogamy. People are always like, oh my god, disease, disease. If you're monogamous, you're safe from disease. And if you're in a non-monogamous relationship, you're going to die of everything. That's one of the sort of misconceptions people have about non-monogamy.
0: Right, right. Everyone thinks that consensually non-monogamous relationships are these hotbeds for STDs. Uh, so there really surprisingly isn't much research out there looking at this idea, uh, so I wanted to, to test it. So um, I recruited a large sample of people online who were in romantic relationships. Some of them said that they had made a monogamy agreement with their partner, uh, meaning they had were only going to have sex with their partner and no one else, and the others... Uh, uh, did not make a monogamy agreement, they had some type of open relationship, mm-hmm. and um, I surveyed them about their uh, health history practices, and, and basically what I found was that there was no difference in risk of contracting uh, or, or risk of reporting uh, having had a sexually transmitted infection across the two groups, um, which a lot of people find surprising <laughs> because it goes against, uh, you know, those, those common beliefs uh, about these relationships. Um, so I guess the real question is sort of what accounts for that. And um, what I find in my research is that a lot of these people who say that they were being monogamous were cheating. Uh, so Which brings me 25- to
4: a question I was going to ask you. You've just answered it. I was, going to, I was going to ask you, how do you control for people, if you're going to do a study like this, who say they're in a monogamous relationship or believe themselves to be in a monogamous relationship but who are not? But that's actually what you were looking for. That's actually what right. sort of led to this result, that those people are a part of the self-identified monogamous crowd, people who are monogamous but are lying.
0: Right. So these are um, I asked people if they had made a monogamy agreement. Now, whether they were upholding their monogamy agreement is a different question. Um, So their partner was under the impression that they were being monogamous, but in reality, a lot of these people weren't. So it was about 25% uh, of the supposedly monogamous participants who were cheating and having other partners. And um, the thing that I find really worrisome about that group is that when these people go out and cheat, um, they often don't use condoms with those other partners, and then they come home and have sex with their primary partner, and they're not using condoms with them either.
4: Do they they want to get caught? What is that? I mean, you would think that if you had a non-monogamous, if you had a monogamous relationship... And you know you'd made a monogamous commitment, and you were going to cheat. You would do everything you could to not get caught in that situation, which would include using as much protection as possible with an outside partner, so that you didn't come home and give your primary partner, who thought you were being monogamous, gonorrhea.
0: <laughs> right. And and that, but that would imply that when people cheat, that it's always a perfectly logical act, uh, and it doesn't seem to be that way. Uh, in my research and other research I've seen. It seems like more often than not, when people cheat, they don't use condoms. They don't take precautions. Um, And then when they come home, they don't want to arouse suspicion with their partner by suggesting that they start using condoms. Uh, And then they're also not telling their partner about all of this other stuff that has happened in the background. So it creates this big opportunity for transmission there, which really elevates the risk of monogamous relationships much higher than than most people would assume.
4: Okay, so what's the takeaway here for the average... Human being, non-science human being, just be in an honest, non-monogamous relationship because you'll be at no greater risk, and at least everyone's being honest. Or not? Or or just like, don't believe the liar who told you that you guys have a monogamous commitment. (laughs) Well, use condoms in in your monogamous relationship because you never know. What's the takeaway? (laughs)
0: Well, I think for me, the takeaway is really to communicate in your relationship and and know what you're getting into. Um, Far be it for me to tell people how they should structure their relationships. I think if you look at the research, you see that some people are well-suited for monogamy. uh, Others are better suited for consensual non-monogamy. And so the idea, I think, is that we need to destigmatize different types of relationship practices, allow people to develop the type of relationship that's right for them and to teach people how to communicate about sex in those relationships so that I think that's all
4: re- on the same page. I think that's really key. And one of the problems is a lot of people who, particularly earlier in life, will make a monogamous commitment because that's what they think they're supposed to want. So they convince themselves right. that that is what they do want and that they'll be good at it and that's what love really is. So you actually find a lot of people in monogamous relationships who aren't cut out for monogamy. And increasingly, I think sometimes with the promotion of and – greater awareness of non-monogamy, you're finding these days some people out in non-monogamy land who don't belong there either, who aren't happy there, but they think this is more right. highly evolved and it's what they should be doing and what their cool hip friends are doing. And what works for you works for you, whether that's non-monogamy or monogamy, and you don't want to be in the wrong camp because you're just going to be right. unhappy.
0: And well said.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, people who want to read the study, where can they find it?
0: Oh, the study was published uh, in the Journal of Sexual Medicine.
4: Justin Lay Miller, social psychologist and sex researcher at Ball State University. Check out his blog, Sex and Psychology, and check out his weekly column for Playboy called Hard Science. While I have you on the phone, are you sad about naked ladies disappearing from Playboy, or do you not care?
0: <laughs> um, it doesn't make that much difference to me, uh, for me, but <laughs> uh, it's always been more about the articles. <laughs>
4: For me too. I think of all those gay boys out there who used to have to flip past the naked ladies and their brothers' Playboys like I did, and now they're spared that
0: that trial. <laughs> From my perspective, there's there's even more content, more to look at in
4: the issue now. Justin Lee Miller, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was fascinating. Great. Thanks, Dan.
9: Hi, Dan. I am a twenty-six-year-old living in New York. I had an amazing experience this summer. One of my biggest fantasies to be with Two other men happened, and these two guys happened to be bisexual, so it was even hotter because they were playing with each other along with me. Long story short, I have now kind of developed this fetish for not just bi bi guys, but gay guys. I want to know how to stay respectful to gay guys and not just go up to them and see if they're interested in um, fucking a woman and respect their sexuality and their boundaries, but also how do I find gay guys or bi guys that sometimes want to fool around with a woman? It seems like the only way it really happens is you have a few drinks, you're partying, you all kind of take the same cap home. I'm wondering if you can give any advice for websites or um, any other kind of outlet for finding these beautiful men.
4: Well, first of all, congratulations on Achievement Unlocked, on fulfilling that fantasy that you've always had of being with two guys and being able to see them mess around with each other. That's hot. I agree. But that's hot. But what you're looking for, gay men who are interested in uh, fucking women, they're out there. I hear from them every once in a very great while. I will get a letter or a call from a gay-identified 98% gay guy who's occasionally interested in hooking up with a woman uh, and yet does not identify as bi because they're rounding themselves up to gay because socially and sexually they're almost entirely gay. and So they're out there. The odds that any one of your gay friends or any one of the gay dudes you happen to be drinking with or in the back of a cab with are one of those guys are really slim because there's not many of those guys out there. And I would advise against making passes at Gay dudes, gay-identified dudes. It's respectful. Kind of like straight guys making passes at lesbian-identified women, even though some of those lesbian-identified women are bisexuals who've rounded themselves up to dyke. And many of them, or most of them, are actually all dyke. It's respectful. So I would encourage you to use the tools that Al Gore has created for us, and endowed us with, which is the interwebs. Get on OkCupid. Okay Get on FetLife if this is indeed a fetish of yours. And put it out there. What you are, what you're looking for, what you want. Put it on Tinder if you're brave. Who knows where you might find the guy. And be attuned to social moments. If you get a vibe, you are free to go for it. You are free to say, my ultimate fantasy, which I've only realized once, is this. And then see what the dude says. Because you never know. But... You're just not going to want to bust that, hey, are you one of those gay dudes who might be up for fucking a woman thing on every gay dude that you drink with, get drunk with, or in the back of a cab with, hang out with? No, because you're going to offend a lot of guys. It is kind of disrespectful. And please, please don't become one of those drunk, touchy-feely bitches in gay bars feeling up the gay dudes. That we do not appreciate, as I detailed on a recent podcast.
10: Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old straight woman in New York City, but mm-hmm. this question is about my good friend who is a straight male of the same age. He finds tattoos to be extremely unattractive and an absolute deal breaker. Um, and so he recently started seeing this girl that he found out how to tattoo in an intimate space and is going to end the very early relationship we were having an argument about what the best way to do it. He maintains he should tell her that it's about the ta- because of the tattoo. I don't necessarily think that that's a great idea. I feel like it sounds very petty and weird. And then the second part of that question is being 20-something in New York City means a lot of women have tattoos. How should he go about weeding those people out so he doesn't find himself in this position over and over and over again?
4: Huh. I definitely think that he should tell this girl that he's about to break up with that it's about the hidden tattoo because it is petty and it is mean. It is small minded. It is weird and better that she should know that he's the petty, weird, small minded one and that there's nothing wrong with her, that she didn't do anything wrong. than for her to sit there wondering what it was that made him dump her, made him run screaming from the room. Cause if he just, fades away or cuts her off or tells her it's over and doesn't give her this reason. She may do that thing that so many of us do when we're dumped for no reason, which is just to sit around and obsess and scrutinize and find fault in herself. But by revealing this to her, he will locate the fault in this scenario accurately for her. And it'll be relief to her to know that the fault is all his, you know, all cats are gray in the dark All girlfriends are tattoo-free in the dark or completely covered in tattoos, full sleeves in the dark, whichever you prefer. And the odds that he is going to find dating in New York City right now, a stream of tattoo-free women is slim, particularly if he is Brooklyn or Brooklyn adjacent. He will have to date the Amish exclusively to avoid the tattoos. But if he lets something like that Get in the way. If somebody is not every other way, emotionally, romantically, sexually compatible, and the tattoo, you could not have a more surface, shallow, two-dimensional reason for dumping someone than that. If he's going to let that get in his way, yes, please, he should tell this girl and every girl he dumps that it's because of the tattoo, so that they know that there was something wrong with him, not that there was something wrong with We're going to take a quick break from the phone calls to revisit a story that I'm sure I ranted about on a past podcast. I think I talked about it at the top of a show. There was this kid, 17 years old, who may or may not have sent a dick pic to his 15-year-old girlfriend, and he was arrested and he was indicted. And there was really this effort to persecute this kid for flirting the way kids and adults flirt these days, which is via cell phone and sometimes via dick pic. And what brought this story to national attention was that The cops were pressing this kid for a picture of his erect penis. They were going to take him in handcuffs to a hospital, inject his penis, something that would make it hard, and then take a photograph of it. And this just seemed sick and demented and perverted. I wrote about it. Robbie Suave, staff editor at Reason Magazine. He also wrote about it. You can read Robbie's stuff at Reason.com, where he blogs and writes daily. And he's jumping on the phone with me now. Hey, Robbie.
3: Hi, good to talk to you, Dan.
4: It's good to talk to you, too. So bring us up to date on this crazy story. Did they ever get the dick pic that they were after, the cops.
3: They did, they did not get that. Uh, they did. Uh, the case ended with him getting a year of probation and sentenced to social media exile and uh, that sort of thing. So he didn't go to jail or anything. Still kind of a, a harsh punishment in a national sh- I mean, his name is forever associated with this kind of thing, and, you know, that, that's a, a punishment. And at least in he didn't, crime in my opinion.
4: And at least he didn't wind up on a sex offender registry like other kids who've right. done this have, which you know they were designed ostensibly to protect kids from predators, and now we're putting kids on these lists and destroying their lives because they're flirting with each other. Not that they're being preyed upon. You know, people are ending up on the sex offender registry without distributing child pornography, but with that charge, because they took a pic of their own junk and shared it with their own girlfriend or boyfriend, which is obscene. But there's been a development today. In this case that you wrote about, that I wanted you to come on and talk. about.
3: Right. So, so the uh, so the lead so one of the investigators in in that case uh, who who works for this task force on internet crimes against children, uh, his name is Edward Ab- David Edward Abbott. He committed suicide today before police could arrest him for uh, sex abuse child for for charges that he was uh, having inappropriate contact with uh, minors with an 11 year old and a 13 year old boy. Uh, stemming from in the last two years. So he is uh, kind of the actual uh, pervert in this situation, and they were going to arrest him. They went to his house. The police had a standoff with him, and he killed himself before he could be arrested.
4: So this Uh, guy who was molesting, raping 11- and 13-year-old boys was the the lead cop prosecuting, persecuting, not prosecuting, persecuting this 17-year-old teenage boy for the crime of flirting the way everybody flirts these. And right, and who,
3: and who explicitly wanted, you know, to to create more child pornography with this kid to take pictures of his genitals and compare them to the existing pictures he'd stolen off the kid's girlfriend's phone, and uh, and I, this is this is the man who is doing that, and now we, you know, we're seeing another dimension into who he is and it kind of makes sense in some just really awful horrible twisted way i guess
4: it does make sense in some horrible awful twisted way because you read about these stories you read about police departments that are pouring all of their time and resources into tracking down sexts and persecuting kids and dragging sex out into public that otherwise would have remained private and you just you read about them you read about the cops and prosecutors involved and you think who are the perverts here who are the perverts these kids. Yeah,
3: absolutely, and they say you know they're protecting the 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 kids' reputations. They don't want you know they want to the girls are going to send pictures and then be slut shamed the rest of their lives or something like that. But but oh my God, is is the is the cure to prevent that so much worse than the disease because their names get out in public, they're arrested, their their lives are just ruined, totally put on hold, criminal justice system, possible charges, even being exiled from social media is a pretty harsh punishment for a Sixteen-year-old kid uh, for a year, and it's just—it's just awful. There's no way you can justify this as, as being uh, worse than 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 you know a little swapping of of, of sexy messages.
4: The so Reason magazine is a libertarian joint, it's a libertarian magazine. What's the libertarian take on this? What do you think undergirds the sex panic that just doesn't seem to be abating when it comes to kids and sex? We basic sex not just sex, in places it is legal for kids to be sexually active and illegal, in almost all places in the United States, illegal for them to take a picture of themselves being sexually active or to flirt via picture. They can fuck, but they can't take a picture of their tits and share it with their boyfriend. What's the libertarian read on that? What's the problem here? What ails us?
3: Yeah, it's uh, from, a, from a libertarian perspective, it's, I find it horrifying the idea that you don't own your own body the state has some claim over over your body and what you do with it sexually, and and you know more so than your own parents or you. You know we're we're talking about underage young people, but but that these kinds of norms of dating and situations that kids you know have been in for centuries, they just have a new technology to do it. That mm-hmm. it's suddenly something wrong with it because they wrote a clumsy law that was just paranoid trying to catch. Uh, you know, actual actual pedophiles, actual people like the cop in charge of investigating this. And uh, they're applying it to kids without rhyme or reason, and they don't care. I've talked to, you know, legislators uh, legislators who approved laws like this and said, you know, is this really what you wanted? And they said, well, of course not, but that's the law. They, and they blame the cops for enforcing it wrong, and then the cops blame, blame the prosecutors for uh, bringing it up in the wrong circumstances and the prosecutors say well we're just doing what the legislators told us to do so no one in government wants to uh will fire the blame here for for this terrible uh, really awful moral panic over sex and the fact that these kids don't have any rights it's like they don't it's like they don't have their own bodies i mean could you take a selfie of yourself in the mirror and have that on your phone and be charged Uh, with one of these crimes, I think you could be, actually, based on my understanding of how they enforce
4: these things. To me, it just seems like a way of criminalizing adolescents because there really isn't a kid in America that if you really had the opportunity as a law enforcement officer to dig into their phone, that you couldn't bring these sorts of charges against. So there's this sword of Damocles hanging over the head of every kid in America. I don't understand why parents all over America aren't up in arms about this because the only thing that stands between your kid... They have a smartphone, and this ruination is one out-of-control cop or one sex panic in a high school. All of our kids are vulnerable to these laws because all of our kids are doing this. And are we really okay with all our kids being at risk of being destroyed like this, winding up on sex offender registries for what? We're not talking about child pornography, not talking about dissemination, talking about a sex shared between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And that's as far as it went until the cops got in. And so many parents are yeah, just comfortable yeah, with it's this awful. peril. This peril that all of our kids are in. It, it baffles back. Yeah, because we me. see stories like
3: this all the time, I mean, week after week. I, I wrote about one uh, a couple of weeks ago where the kid, it was a North Carolina kid, and in that state, uh, the, the age of consent, so he could, just like you said, he could have sex with his girlfriend because he was over 16, but he was considered a juvenile because he was under 18, and yet he could be charged criminally, because, uh, the statute of, of one year adults are being charged for criminal purposes is, is over 16. So he was an adult to be sentenced, but a child for the purposes of taking pictures of himself, but then also an adult for the purposes of actually having sex. And, uh, you know, his, his high school career was briefly put on hold. He was a promising. Uh, a football star, a young black man. Obviously, uh, oftentimes these are young black kids because those are the sort of people that police grab their phones and look through their pictures of. Right. And, uh, and just, just what, a, what a terrible thing. Why are we doing this to our kids?
4: Robbie Suave, staff editor at Reason Magazine. Read his stuff at Reason.com. We blog all the time. And follow him on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? I follow you on Twitter, and it's always really informative. What's your Twitter handle? At
3: Robbie Suave.
4: Spell Suave for the ignorant out there
3: at uh, r-o-b-b-y s-o-a-v-e
4: thank you so much for coming on the phone really appreciate it love your stuff thank you have a good one
11: hi Dan I am a 28 year old female from Minneapolis I have a problem with my boyfriend that I really don't know how to handle his dad died when he was 8 years old he is now 35 Uh, his dad died around Christmas And he has been using that as an excuse to pick fights and be kind of a nightmare for about six weeks now. So it's about a week, two weeks until Christmas. I don't know what emotional trauma he has gone through and what he hasn't dealt with. But I also understand, like, we all go through this journey in life. We all go to problems and I don't want to be insensitive to what he's gone through. However, again, it's been almost 30 years. How do I confront this issue? Being sensitive to not having dealt with, having lost a parent. I just want to be supportive and good to him. He is the love of my life. I think he's wonderful. I would like to work this out. However, I also don't want to spend my life with someone who uses mm, life trauma as an excuse to be a human nightmare for two months.
4: You don't say how long you've been dating this guy. And you don't mention having gone through many Christmases with him. So maybe this is the first Christmas to which you are being treated with monster. I would advise you if you're really just six months, nine months into this relationship to end it and to tell him why you're ending it. He needs to take it out on a therapist, not on his girlfriend. It is terrible tragedy to lose a parent as a child. That does not, like you said, does not give you an excuse to be an asshole to someone all of your adult life. We all move through lives with trauma. We, all of us, by the end of it, have had chunks torn out of us. And that does not give us license to just be monstrously shitty to anyone in our vicinity. Particularly people who love and support us. Those are the last people who should be monstrously shitty. You should be monstrously shitty to anybody. least of all you. So you need to have a talk with him about the consequences that are coming his way. He's not only going to be regrieving his father's death around Christmas this year. He's going to be doing it solo and single and dumped. Which may be what he wants. Sometimes people make themselves intolerable so that we will dump them. And their hand down on that self-destruct button. They don't have the temerity or the decency or the insight to know that they want to be dumped. They just are awful until they are dumped. Maybe that's what he wants. But whether he wants it or not, that is what you should give him. And if you stay in this relationship and he doesn't get help, doesn't get therapy, it doesn't get any better, then every year around Christmas I would encourage you to go on a two-month-long trek in the Himalayas the fuck away from him at Christmas time. Let him stew and rage alone. He can't be a human being to the other human beings who are still in his life around this time. of year.
12: Hey, Dan, this is a student three-year-old calling from the Tri-State area. I'm just having an argument here with my girlfriend. Um, We've been together for a year. We've been on a a vacation together, a seven-day cruise. So we're arguing about I told her that I want to take maybe a Saturday over and go hang out with all my friends or whatever. This is after not missing one day in 365 days of the year. So we have been together for a year. We haven't missed a day. And when I go and tell her, oh, can I go hang out, hang out with my friends on Saturday? She blows it out of proportions and, and tells me that one year doesn't validate anything in our relationship. Can you please tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm right? And what does a year validate in our relationship?
4: A lot of research out there into successful relationships that shows that one component of successful relationship is time spent together. That's very important. People have to spend time together. But paradoxically, conversely, on the flip side, another important component, the mirror image, the photo-negative component of that is time spent apart. You need to get the fuck away from each other every once in a while. You need to have other relationships, not other romantic relationships, friendships, support networks. That if you two are just going to be locked in a room together, eye to eye, forever, if that's how your girlfriend defines a successful relationship, every relationship she's going to be in is going to end or collapse. Because the only way you can spend some time on your own, alone, with your friends, is if you're out of this relationship, you will get out of this relationship. You will either exit it honestly, you will either end it for this reason, or you will engineer an exit you will make yourself intolerable she has made herself intolerable already in this you will find a way to retaliate by making yourself intolerable in other ways so that she ends it if you don't have the courage or decency or insight to end it yourself but this is a recipe for failure this is a recipe for non-success unsuccess doom this inability of her to give you some fucking off-leash time to see friends People need to be away from their partners so that you can come back together and have had other experiences. So you can be a little strange to each other because that fuels and ignites attraction. You out there in the world having different experiences with other people that you're not fucking, not putting your dick in, not putting your tongue in their mouths, anything, but other people encountering other people and then getting to come home or return to her and tell her about it. And likewise, her doing the same. One element that they've found that seems to work well in truly long-term relationships and undergird their health and stability is not just a day off and a day away from each other on a vacation, but separate vacations, going off somewhere alone without your partner and then returning to your partner, having had some time away, having gained some perspective on your relationship. So you're excited to see them again. You're not ever excited to see someone you're handcuffed to. You're excited to see the boyfriend or girlfriend if you've gone away for a weekend camping or whatever. And there they are when you get home and you get to tell them about, I don't know what people do when they camp. the Bears you outrun, the shits you took in the woods, the whatevers. So excited to tell them. So excited to see them again. Smell them again. And fuck them again. Excited to see them to put your dick back in them. Or have their dick put back in you. Or whatever it is you guys do. But this your girlfriend is really this insecure and it's only been a year, I think you should draw a line in the sand and say, this is going to happen for the good of our relationship. Because I would like us to work out long-term drawing a line in the sand. I'm spending a day off by myself and you should find some folks to hang out with that day too, or do something on your own that you enjoy doing on your own. And at the end of the day, we'll come back together and we'll have a great time. We'll go to dinner. We'll talk about our days. And if you can't do that, If I come back at the end of the day and it's drama and things being thrown, what that proves is that this relationship does not have a future and that this relationship is over at the end of this vacation.
2: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 26-year-old female living in a a big West Coast city, and I have a question, a family-related question for you. So about two years ago, my dad... And his wife, my stepmom, told me and my sister that they had something that they wanted to tell us. And specifically, my stepmom wanted to tell us because she said that she felt that this information was keeping her from feeling close to us. Now, granted, we haven't been close, I would say, since I was a young teen. Um, But anyway, we have this conversation and we sit down and my dad tells us that he had had a nine months long or a ten month long affair with my stepmom's sister so his wife's sister who is my age she's twenty six also I was very disturbed at this information and it also brought up old hurt because my step, my dad had left my mom for his current wife's stepmom um, for uh, when I was thirteen when his current wife was 26. So basically with his current wife because he had an affair with her um, when he was married to my mom. And now <laughs> a couple of years ago, he told us that he had an affair with his current wife with her sister, who was 26. I guess I have a couple of questions for you. One, I feel really um, angry at him and angry at my stepmom because I feel like it was inconsiderate of them to disclose this private information about their relationship There's no way for me to unknow this, and I don't want to know that about my dad's sex life and about um, their relationship. Also, I don't know. I don't know how to read my dad's actions. Like, is it possible that he's some kind of sex addict? Or, like, and, or is it possible that he's attracted to me and my sisters? Um, Because I feel like that thought has entered my mind, and it's very disturbing to me. So I would love to hear your take on my anger and on... I don't know what's
4: going on with my dad you're wondering what's going on with your dad and i'm sitting here wondering what's going on with you and what's going on with your fucking stepmother who is awful earlier in the show we talked about how there are things a parent has a right not to know things a mom has a right not to know like my mom used to say there are things a kid has a right not to know you don't need to know where your dad has parked his dick even if he's parked his dick there in contravention of his Marriage vows to his second wife. You did not need to know this. Your stepmother's rationalization for forcing him to tell you this about the affair that he had with her sister, that it was preventing you from being closer. is just bullshit. This affair made her angry at her husband and she wanted her husband punished. And the way to do that was to screw up his relationship with his kids. And bingo, success. She accomplished that with your help. Call her with your help. Because you are making a weird and sex-phobic leap from, my father is this straight guy with this crazy affliction, this weird pathological attraction to women in their mid-20s. Which, I'm here to tell you, is something all straight men everywhere suffer from. Except for the gerontophiles, they all do. They're all into women in their mid-20s. People to be decent, sexually active human beings. Their floor for... Who they find attractive does not have to rise with plus 10 years on the age of their children. So eventually your children will pass through your typical attraction age range, whether you like it or not. It's terrific that there are 50-year-old men out there who attracted 50-year-old women. There are 50-year-old women out there who attract 50-year-old men. A lot of people have the ability to also be attracted to people in their age cohort, but they're also still probably gonna find people attractive in that sweet spot window that they were kind of always into and you go from my father is attracted to guys in their mid-20s to my father wants to fuck me how do you get there You, you you say that you you know he's made you uncomfortable a couple times i don't know what that means and you didn't leave a phone number so i can't call you back so perhaps i'm overreacting it seems unfair to say that because your father has twice had affairs with women who are the age you happen to be right now that your father is attracted to you right now because you are that age Taint necessarily so, not how it works, right? The incest taboo is strong. And it's just not that someone hits a particular age and suddenly the incest taboo evaporates and you're like, you know, I never wanted to fuck my kid until my kid turned 29 and a half, which has always been the sweet spot for me. And suddenly I want to fuck my kid. Not how it works. Your stepmother did not respect your father's Privacy. Your father didn't respect his monogamous commitment that he made to her, presumably. And that's too bad. And now you have been psychically kind of violated. But unless there's more here than you shared with me, there's nothing sex addict y and out of control about a guy who's had two wives and a couple of affairs. Not necessarily sex addict y and out of control. And there's nothing. In the facts as you presented them to us, that screams, dad wants to fuck his daughters. It's a coincidence that you are the same age roughly as the women that he has had affairs with. I can't pop his head open and tell you that he isn't lusting after you. But the odds are that he is not. The overwhelming odds are that he is not. Those kinds of desires are... Rare and highly aberrant. And under circumstances, you give your father the benefit of the doubt and you assume that despite the fact that you eventually grew to be the age that his second wife was when he began fucking her and his second wife's sister was when he began fucking his second wife's sister, that that doesn't mean, it doesn't follow, that he wants to or would ever fuck you. Your dad sounds like not a great guy when his dick is hard. That's true of a lot of people's dads. You didn't need to know this. About him, the person I think you should be angriest at—be angry at your dad a little bit if you want—but the person you should be angriest at is your stepmother. Her forcing him to tell you something that you had a right not to know, in an effort—a transparent effort on her part—to sabotage your relationship with your dad, and successfully so it seems, because of this illogical, irrational leap you've made from my dad fucked a 26-year-old to I am 26 to my dad wants to fuck me.
13: Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 29-year-old uh, heterosexual guy, and I'm having relationship problems I really don't know how to deal with. But I graduated from uh, law school about a year and a half ago. And at that time, I'd been dating uh, my girlfriend for about a year. And I uh, shortly after I graduated, I moved in with her. But um, I wasn't able to find a job. And so after a few months of me not being able to really get anything but, like, temporary or very part-time work that couldn't really pay the bills and I couldn't, you know, chip in my half of rent. She got set up and she uh, kicked me out. And so we were broken up for a couple months and then we, uh, we got back together and I uh, passed the bar exam and uh, things were going really well for a while. I mean, I was very happy with, with how things were headed and we were talking very seriously about getting married basically as soon as I got a job. But I kept on not getting any work except for just kind of like temporary gigs and stuff like that. And so there was this episode where she just got very upset and kind of depressed about feeling like we were in limbo and she couldn't kind of make any plans or know where her life was going. And she started becoming very, very distant and, um, And then there was a point where I uh, was about to leave for a little while to go uh, work this like contract gig. And she told me to just take all of my stuff with me because she didn't know if she wanted me to come back or not. And that was about a month ago. And we haven't really talked much at all since then. I've been, you know, working this job that's no good and sleeping on my brother's couch. And I I don't really know what to do because there's like there's this ambiguity about whether this relationship that I'm really invested in is over or not. And like, if if she's willing to take me back, whether, whether I should like, whether that would be a smart thing for me to do. And I just don't really feel like I know how to move on or like get my life in order because I can't disentangle like the rejection from her and the rejection from all of these employers that aren't giving me the time of day for the past year and a half. And, um, I just don't really know how to think about this or how to get my shit together because I've,
4: I've been having a hard time. So so let's talk about the girl that's yeah. kind of breaking your heart. Uh, you know, Just based on your call, and I only have your your version of events. It would be interesting to get her on the phone, but I'm not going to do that. To, to determine whether, you know, if she is the kind of person who, you know, thought because you were in law school that she would be marrying a lawyer and there'd be plenty of money and because you're having a hard time finding a job – She's not so interested anymore and that's, you know, that thing that people talked about a lot I think 10, 20 years ago about women are sex objects and men are success objects Mm -hmm. and you aren't the success object that she was banking on you being and so she's done. In which case, she's a terrible person and you're well rid of her, right? Or are you a screw-up with lousy judgment and she's (laughs) well rid of you? And I don't know what the answer to either of those questions are. Have you turned down jobs because they were beneath you? Are you not really – in it to win it? Are you not really applying yourself to the job hunt? And she's in a better place to make that assessment than I am. People don't want to be with screw ups with lousy judgment. They don't. And and I'm not saying that you are a screw up with lousy judgment. But you might be able to make that determination for yourself. And I don't think you are. Like you're 29 years old. You just got your law degree. You passed the bar. Those are major fucking accomplishments that typically screw ups with lousy judgment are not capable of nailing. Right? Mm-hmm. So my money is on yeah. you not to screw up with lousy judgment. So I would encourage you to let this relationship end because the being in the job hunt just to win her back is a lousy reason to be in the job hunt. You need to be doing this for you right now and she's causing you a lot of emotional pain by this I'll date you if you if your employment history is satisfactory. Which is kind of a shitty way to treat someone in our economy, which landing a permanent gig is tough. That's why they call it the gig economy now. Landing a permanent slot is tough and takes time and you're only twenty nine and you're just starting out. And if she can't regard this stage of your career as a much of an investment in you as law school was an investment in you, then she's gotta she may have a screw loose and not deserve you. I
13: think part of what's going on is that she's someone that um like she really doesn't like insecurity and, and like the inability, like she wants to be able to kind of look forward and be confident that she like has some control over like her life and her situation. And so when like, she's just kind of waiting on me to find a break,
4: what does she do for a living? She has a,
13: she has like an administrative job at a law firm working in like the billing department. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's nothing amazing, but it's a solid, it's a solid professional job, nine to five, all that kind of thing.
4: Right. How long does it typically take people after law school to land a, a, a gig?
13: I, I wish I knew. Like, I mean, I've heard stories about people that, you know, take three or four years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and obviously some people get it like right out. And I, I just don't really know. And I think like there are some things about my situation that make it a little bit harder, um, like because I'm, I'm looking for work. In Pennsylvania, which is not like uh, where I grew up or where I know people.
4: Oh my God! You know what? I literally said before I called you that if he breaks up with her, then he doesn't have to just apply for jobs where she happens to have parked her ass. That he can apply for jobs everywhere, and that I wish. You, <laughs> what do you mean you wish? Like if well, you're limiting like your job past search the bar to in Pennsylvania? Okay, well you can apply for jobs all over Pennsylvania, as yeah. opposed to just the city where she happens to live which is probably what you've been doing. Yeah. You've been limiting your search to there, where you yeah. want to be because you want to be with her. And I would encourage you to just call this fucking thing off for now or put it on hiatus or emotionally cleave yourself from it. Apply in every to, for every job all over the state, wherever you can, and land something. And if in two or three years you're in a different place and you guys want to circle back and maybe get back in touch and you don't feel too assessed as a success object at that moment and are still into her who knows or maybe you'll meet fucking someone else there there are worse things than be a being a 29 year old member of the bar and single and looking for work and getting a gig in another fucking town and moving do you mind telling us what city it is that you've been applying for jobs in philadelphia okay well there's pittsburgh yeah and there's other fucking cities And there's other fucking gigs and places you can hang out a shingle and other firms that might be hiring in some podunk town. You can work your way up to Philadelphia, but get the fuck out of town. Broaden your search. It's not limited to wherever this woman happens to be because you're single.
0: Yeah. Because
4: you're single. Say it. I'm single.
13: All right. I'm single.
4: And I I know that's scary because the whole culture says if you're alone, you've done something wrong. But if you're alone, you you have to say to yourself, I have opportunity, romantic opportunities and freedom that you lose when you're partnered. And there's things you gain when you're partnered around security and intimacy and familiarity and comfort. But sometimes it's good to be discomforted and with unfamiliar people in unfamiliar places. Mm -hmm. It's exciting.
13: The thing about it is that it's like, I feel like if, if it was just that I was single, I would be dealing with it better. But like I'm single and broke and staying on my brother's couch working a job that I hate, you know? So like,
4: I kind of feel like... And you know who can say that? Millions and millions of 29 year olds and 20 somethings all over the country <laughs> yeah, can say that. So stop the pity party, put the violin down, get the resumes out to firms in other cities that are hiring, even smaller cities in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and go find something. Go make it happen for yourself. That's the stage of life you're at. You know what I was doing at your age? Not this stupid job. Not this dumb fucking gig I lucked into. I was waiting tables and not sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. At 29, I didn't have no law degree to fall back on. You're in a much better place at 29 than I was. So don't come whining to me about where you're at. (laughs) I had, t- okay. I had tons of student loan debt and no clue at 29. Okay. Buck up. Buck the fuck up. And you have a couch to sleep on. There's a lot of people out there without jobs that don't have family that yeah, I know. Can, can help them out and tide them over. And in 10, 20 years, you'll be in a position to be offering the couch to somebody who needs that place.
13: Yeah.
4: Okay. Buck up, buckaroo. Buck up, single member of the bar. Major <sighs> life right. accomplishments. You've got, it. You've got it going on all right all right good luck
12: hey dan and um at risk youth i'm a 27 year old cis male in the bay area and let me tell you something my current situation i'm dating this guy who's slowly coming out of the closet which is good he's doing it at his own time but there's this one bitch who just doesn't mind her business and used to be close friends with him. And she's going around telling everyone that we're dating when we have not confirmed anything to her yet. And she's also saying that he dated her for seven months when we know for sure that he's a gold star. gay. What should we do? Should we ignore this bitch? Or should we bring it up and tell her, you know, mind your own fucking business and leave me
4: and my man alone, honey. What this woman is seeking is drama. What she's trying to engineer here is drama and you going to her and confronting her is giving her what she wants. Now I'm going to make some assumptions based on the sound of your voice and the way in which you frame this problem and discuss it and just how you seem, how you come across that Drama may be something that you want too. Maybe drama is attractive to you. You seem like maybe the drama of this is appealing or drama is appealing. Just something in the the tone or tenor of your voice, the timbre of your voice sounds dramatic. So you can go to her and you can confront her and you can tell her to back off my man and of chardonnay at her and bitch her out. Or you can really fuck with her By letting her run her mouth, letting her say whatever the fuck she wants because it is not relevant and it doesn't matter and she doesn't matter and she is lying. And the people around her, the people around you, guys, people who know all three of you, will know enough soon enough to realize that she's lying and she will just look foolish. But if you go in there swinging those glasses of Chardonnay, tossing the wine – If you go in there like that, people who know all of you are going to be like, they're messy. Those girls are messy. All three of those girls are messy. Just out girl, the girl he's dating and the girl who's lying. All those girls, messy girls. and They're going to back away from all three of you. Other people who don't like drama. Or maybe, you know, you could attract a crowd of people who dig drama. Maybe that's the crowd you want to be in. In which case, go confront her. But if you don't want to be in that crowd, don't give the bitch what she wants. Don't give her the drama she wants. Don't put her on... Real house girlfriends of the Bay Area? Don't give it to her. Shrug it off. You got the dude. You win. Let her stew.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm uh, just calling to respond to the question last week about uh, people not stripping down in the locker room. I'm a personal trainer. I work in a gym, and I work out really regularly. And the reason that I wear a towel in the locker room is not because most people if they are checking you out and a lot of people are aren't pretty subtle about it it's because some people really really aren't and if you wear a towel you know you just really reduce the odds that some dude is just going to stare real hard at your dick which happens quite a bit and you know i mean like i i am i i have a nice dick it's it's not too far above average certainly nothing that would be like you know you'd rubberneck like a like a car crash but like it, it, it happens. So I would say if we want everybody to be more naked, Not don't check people out. I mean, regardless of your orientation, it's going to happen, and that's cool. It's fine, whatever. But just just try to be a little more subtle about it, and then maybe people will feel better about showing their dicks.
6: Hey, Dan. Uh, Straight Mail here calling about episode 478 in regard to the male nudity in the locker room not about immaturity or modesty or fear of gay people in the locker room. It's about me not wanting to see a bunch of other dudes' dicks flopping around, so I assume that nobody wants to see my dick flopping around, and I extend them the courtesy of not flopping my dick all over everywhere.
11: Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 478 about the guy who had a vomiting kink. I just want to let you know that there are sex workers out there who do that. Um, My friend who's a dominatrix used to do that. And her advice is if anybody wants to try it out, to eat yogurt beforehand because it makes the experience smoother. Thanks.
4: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a comment or a question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Robbie Suave on Twitter at Robbie Suave. Follow Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. And speaking of Twitter, Adam Sandy tweets: Thanks to Dan Savage for the podcast. It's keeping me entertained as I stay up with our newborn daughter, so my wife can get some sleep. And I have nothing to add to that, nothing to say, but ah, and congratulations! And it sounds like your wife won the husband lottery. Savage Lovecast, produced every week by Nancy Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth, and Nancy, we will be back at you next week, next year, which is an election year, with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.